0: Well, good morning and welcome one more time to Encounter Church. Uh, my name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter, and I have the privilege of, uh, of sharing with you the exclamation point, the ending of this series that we're in called Unstoppable. Remember, we're taking a look at the, at the church in the book of Acts, the early church, and seeing how God has created this the, the church as his unstoppable movement to bring heaven to earth, to bring people far from God to new life in Christ. Before that, though, as we're saying and we're really excited about. Today is Baptism Sunday here in Encounter, and we're super pumped. Um, if you're wondering if like maybe this is your Baptism Sunday, maybe this is your opportunity to show the world that you've been raised to new life in Christ, uh, Paula's way in the back, and she would love to, to walk you through that process a little bit more. What we try to do is remove every possible barrier that could prevent you from making that choice today. So clean clothes, new clothes, t-shirts, the Encounter, shirts, of course, and, uh, and pairs of shorts, underwear, changes of clothes. We've got rides for you if you need one. Like, if, you, if you're if you coming here and you're like, hey, I rode with a ton of people and I'm not sure if, like, I can get a ride back to where I came from, like, we will call your Uber for you to get you to where you came from. And then we're going to hook you up with new friends who are willing to stay five minutes after so that you can show the world you've been raised to new life in Christ. Um, All right, so the series today, Unstoppable, um, the the series that we wrap up with now is about a change of plans, which I think is appropriate on Baptism Sunday, uh, because it's really a change. As Brandon just highlighted with us, it's a change uh, from uh, uh, the inward, uh, inward sign of what Jesus is doing in our lives. This baptism is our demonstration uh, of that change. As Zach said, he felt like when he was graduating from uh, high school and on into college that he could have gone down a couple of different roads. And baptism for him meant that he was going to go down this road. It was this, this change of plans. And so I want to say that we've all had our own change of plans that we've experienced before. Um, I remember distinctively when when I was in seventh grade, maybe eighth, uh, having a conversation with my older brother, who was probably junior, senior in high school at the time, and uh, he asked me, like, hey, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I laid out my plan for him. I said, without hesitation, I'm going to be a businessman. And he's like, he kind of laughed at me like, you're doing right now, that's all right, my feelings aren't hurt. And then he said, well, (laughs) like, Dirk, what kind of businessman are you going to be? And without any hesitation at all, I said, the kind with a briefcase and a suit. (laughs) And I never got my briefcase, and I only wear a suit if somebody's getting married or buried. But like, other than that, I'm sure it's all the same, right? Um, There was this, this change of plans. That happened in my life. Now, I know a lot of you have had these, these changes of plans in your life. Maybe you were in an airport earlier this week, and you, know, you thought you were going one way, and you ended up going an entirely different way. It's a change of plans. And Maybe you've had a financial setback, and it just caused all of your plans to change, a relational one. You thought you were heading in this direction, and all of a sudden something happened, and now you're heading entirely in a new direction. And so what we're going to do this morning is to take our plans... And to lay them before God's plan. And to ask Him to help his plan become our plan. And then ask a couple of questions and follow-up as to how we know that we're on God's plan. But first, I want us to all recognize and see that we are not alone in this change of plans, that there are people in the Bible that God knew that he was gonna change our plan so often, that he gave us a story in the book of Acts that really highlights this change of plan. So you can go there. There's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. The words are gonna be on the screen behind me, but we're gonna go to Acts chapter 18. And we're going to go through uh, 1 through 11. But Acts chapter 18, starting off in verse 1, we hear this story about Paul. If you don't know, remember, Paul is a leader of the church, probably like the, the most well-known leader in the early church. Started so many different churches. He, uh, he wrote about half of the books in what we call now as our New Testament. They were actually letters to those churches starting off. And this is, this is Paul's change of plans. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And I want us to just know that when he goes from one place, when he goes to Corinth, um, he's experiencing something there. Corinth, in a lot of ways, people say it was like the Las Vegas of the time. He, he's, going to, he, he's going to Corinth, and we're going to see this is, the, this, is, this is like the beginning story. This is the origin story. Like this is the Batman Begins story of the church in Corinth. We've got a book of the Bible, two of them actually, first and second, corinthians right that name just wasn't pulled out of thin air this is letters written to the church in corinth and so we end up we know like a lot about this place and a lot about of the people there and what we have here is like how it got to be what it got so this is corinth that we're in that we're going to spend our whole time in Uh, verse two and there he this is paul now he met a jew named aquila a native of Pontus, who had recently come from italy with his wife priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. There are so many names and places and everything just like flooding, like hitting you at the same time. Um, As I was reading through, I was just trying to like keep everything separate. Most of them, we don't have to worry about. Claudius is the emperor in Rome. He made an edict, a decree, because he was, he was tired of all the spiritual diversity that was happening in Rome. and He felt like he was pulling people apart. So he told all of the Jews and a number of others as well, like they had to just get out. Like they had to flee. He, they were not allowed to live in Rome any longer. And then uh, Priscilla and her husband Aquila were part of that movement, right, to go out of that place and then, uh, and then settle in someplace new. They ended up in Corinth, as we see. But what I, just, what I want us to see here is that two things. First of all, it's kind of minor, but I think it's a cool point, is that they're a couple, Aquila and Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, and most of the time in the Bible, this is just kind of interesting, the way that the Bible talks, the authors of the Bible talk about these two people, they're like interchangeable. Almost every other couple in the Bible, he is listed first. It's just, the, it's just the context. It's just like what they did. They listed the guy first and then her. But with this couple, like they're Priscilla, Aquila, and then Aquila and Priscilla, half the time about for each. So I'm just going to like lay that right there. These are both like co-leaders in the church, which I think is, is pretty cool. The other thing is they're refugees that just got kicked out of Rome. And now they're like starting over, starting this new life in Corinth. And I I love that about them because because they don't probably have a whole lot. They don't know a whole lot of people in Corinth, I'm sure. It hasn't hasn't been their home. They weren't planning on moving there. They just sort of like found themselves there. And so what I think is so cool about that picture of of Priscilla and Aquila starting over this new life is that any of you who have ever, ever told God your plan— and then, and then started to hear something from him that maybe didn't quite align up with that. And you told God in return, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not settled enough, or I'm not qualified enough, or I'm not well-networked enough, and I just want to like lay that and say like Priscilla and Aquila. Right? Like These are going to be two leaders of the church in Corinth, and they started from the bottom, and, and, and God used them to make this church movement in Corinth that is going to be so influential later on. And so I, I, I want to kind of like take a look at this, this ministry, this awesome ministry couple, and to say for all of us who have felt like we're not enough, there's Priscilla and Aquila. I want to take this, this ministry couple and say they found themselves at what probably seemed like to them as a dead-end place, right, where they, they couldn't really go much from here because what they wanted to do, what they planned on doing, had been taken, had been ripped away from them. Okay, but what they thought was a dead end, God said, oh, no, no, no. we're just getting started with you. So whatever your, whatever your dead end place is, right, whether it's a job that just ended abruptly, a dead end, a relationship, a financial thing that just dead ended, I want you to hear God speak over your life. Oh, no, no, no. we're just getting started here. What strikes me about this couple is just how, uh, uh, in a way, kind of normal they are. Not, not normal in the sense like, wow, we typically think of like refugees as the ones that God is going to like start this amazing movement in the church. No, no, no. What I mean in, in the Bible, in the story of the Bible, God normally works, it seems, with this kind of couple that like have nothing. So all the glory is to God in him alone. It's not because they were so enough. that that the normal part of the Priscilla and Aquila story is that it's not like God overcame these remarkable odds and, and like, used them. It's that he kind of, like, plans on using people like them. So whatever your dead-end story is, it's not the case that God, like, someday might use it to his glory. It's that he is right now planning on using that for his story we see that in Priscilla and Aquila. So we're going to move on. Uh, verse, finishing it off there. Priscilla and Aquila—they're so uh, influential. They're going to be so. Paul, of course, he goes to see them. Paul went to see them. Verse three, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and he worked with them every Sabbath. He reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. I love that it just says that he was, um, that, that he was a tent maker along the way because sometimes we like separate out like what it means to to, to like work your, your nine to five, work your job, and then your faith life is like over here in this bucket entirely, and this other side. I got a call earlier this week from somebody, he was a, he was a realtor, and he was almost like apologetic in the way of like, hey, I think that God is asking me to like maybe do something with this property, and I, so I just thought I would kind of bring it up to you, and, and, you know, and he was like, I'm not even sure if like I'm really allowed to like, you know, mix these two things together, and I was like, whoa, whoa, guy, like, wait, hold on here a second, like, we don't do that. If you feel like these things are like torn apart, like you got to figure out a way to like bring them back together again. What do you think Paul, you know, why do you think Paul chose tent making? Probably because he's sitting down, and he's working in his hands along with these other people. He's pouring into them. He's hearing them pour into him, and, and he's making these tents as a way to give glory to God, like all throughout this process. So that's just kind of aside the point that I love that he brings these things, two things together. Um, so he's spending this time now testifying on the weekends, and at night preaching in the the synagogues testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Verse 6. When they opposed, these are people in the synagogue now, when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your heads for I am innocent of it. And then he gets really bold and he starts to tell God his plan. He says, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. Now, before we get to the Gentiles, that's like a harsh thing to say, right? Like, you know what? That's it. Your blood is on your hands. Like, I am innocent of it. And that's kind of our reaction sometimes uh, to people. Uh, like, outside the church, if they've offended us or somehow, or if they don't believe, it, and it's just like, you know what? I'm done. I don't need this. Your blood on your heads. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of that message at some point, and you're like, oh, man, see, that's why I don't like religious people or spiritual people, like, whatever it is. Like, I'm done with the church, liars, hypocrites, sinners. Like, that's us. We put it in our video completely and totally. Maybe you've been at that place of, like, receiving that, and it's just like this nasty kind of comment. But I, I want to temper that a little because Paul, among others, among other things, he is a passionate person. <laughs> um, he says this as a way of saying like, I, I think what he's saying is, I can't do salvation for you. Like this is on you and you alone. This is up to you. This is your call. I think in today's language we might say, your parents can't do salvation for you. Or your husband or your wife can't do salvation for you or your kids, or your church, or your pastor, or your small group or leader can't do salvation for you. He's saying, listen, this, this is on you. The way that we know that it comes out in love is because there's another letter that he wrote to the church in Rome. And he's writing, and, and one of the things that he says to the, to the Christians in Rome, he says, I wish that I could be, for your sake, I wish that I could be cut off from Christ for the sake of the Jews, my brothers and sisters. And that just, like let that hit you for just a minute, right? Like he is saying, I wish that like for your sake that I I would go to hell so that you don't have to. Like that's how much I care. And I think that is such a remarkable statement of 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 love to see someone else thrive that much. I would be willing to go to that place because I think he's ready because that's what Christ has done for me. He has gone to that place for your sake. So when you hear like him kind of like wash his hands and saying, I'm done, your blood is on your own. Head. I want you to take that as a sign of his deep love for these people. But he gets really audacious now and he tells God that, that I'm done with the Jewish people, I'm done with spiritual people, I'm done with the religious people, I'm ready to go to just the Gentiles outside of, of the synagogue entirely. Okay, right? What do they say? If you want to hear God laugh... <laughs> Tell him your plans. He does, and God answers. Uh, verse 7, Paul's plan. Then Paul, he left the synagogue, like the spiritual center, and he went next door to the house of. Titius is how you pronounce that. Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. It's probably the most Greek-sounding name you could come up with then, right? Because Paul's like, I'm done with these people. I'm gonna go to the Greekest person I can think of, Titius Justice, next door to the synagogue. Telling God his plans, we hear God laugh back at him in verse eight, Crispus. Now, the synagogue leader (laughs) and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. I love that because, like, verse 8 kind of comes almost out of nowhere. When you're like, wait a second, Paul is like done with these people, done with the synagogue. They were bad to him. They abused him. They beat him up. They said awful things about him. And so he's done. And so he goes to the most Greek-sounding person next door that he possibly could. And then he finds out this random verse 8 is that the synagogue leader now comes to faith and his whole family is baptized. Oh my goodness. God has other plans. Verse 9. God has another plan for him. And one night, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and said this. The Lord said, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you. Because I have many people in this city. And so in the ultimate change of plans, Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. You ever think about this for a minute? If you know some of these stories, if you, if you know the story of Paul, if you know that he became as influential as he did, starting as many churches as he did, winning so many for the cause of Jesus as he did, you ever think about him in need of a vision from God that reminds him not to be afraid, not to quit speaking, not to stay silent? Is your your image of Paul the kind of guy that needs to hear directly from God and a reminder that he, in fact, will never leave him or forsake him? Like 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 I think of Paul and and I think of a I think of a superhero of the faith, right? I think of Paul and I think of somebody where like 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 spiritual bullets bounce off from his chest when fired at him. I'm mixing all kinds of metaphors, I know. But like um Paul is that kind of guy. He's such a such a hero of the faith. I never think about Paul like like afraid to stand up and afraid to speak out. Afraid and ends up keeping silent like that's not the picture of Paul that I have in my mind I think the fact that that the Lord comes to him and and gifts him with this vision and says Paul as a reminder don't be afraid I got this I'm with you it's like this this awesome way of God accommodating Paul and saying I know future generations aren't going to get it they're going to think you're a superhero but God says I know Paul I know that you're an ordinary guy That's the picture that we get. I told you we knew a ton. We know a lot about Corinth as a city, as a church, because Paul wrote there a lot, probably four times. In fact, the letters in our Bible, of uh, the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians, are actually probably the second and fourth letters that Paul wrote to this church. Like he had his ongoing relationship. And one of the things he says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, he starts off and he goes, you remember when I showed up? I wrote it down. He says, remember when I w- remember when I got there? When I came to you, he said, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I came with a story about Jesus. And that's and that's about it. And then in, in verse 3, he says, I came to you in weakness with, and I'm quoting here, great. Fear and trembling. I came to you, Corinth. In this story, I came to you lying awake at night, worried about what was going to be, what was going to happen to me. When I when I came to you, I had already been beaten up. I had already been rejected. I had already been abused. And you know, when I I ministered to you and when I told you the story of Jesus, I was terrified that I was gonna get beaten up again, that I was gonna get rejected again, that I was gonna get abused again. I was so scared of that happening that Jesus needed to come to me in a vision and remind me not to be afraid because Paul is what we can see. He's like this ordinary guy that God does extraordinary things with. You know, I hope throughout this series, Unstoppable, you've been asking that question, like, what makes the church unstoppable? And I think it's this, that God takes ordinary people like Paul, like me, like you, and and mixes them up with other ordinary people among us And he does extraordinary things with us. That's the unstoppable movement of God that we call the church. He's got a change of plans. He stays in Corinth for at least a year and a half. It may have been longer. Uh, We don't know. But he hands, he takes his plan of I'm done with the Jewish people entirely. And God he says, no, you're not. I want you to come back to the synagogues. I want you to come back to the temple. I want, you to, I want you to preach in the name of Jesus. And he does for another year and a half in that city. He doesn't give up on them, no matter what he wants to. He never gives up. And I want to ask us as a community, especially as we round out this series, like what is it, how is it, that God is uniquely preparing us and equipping us to be the unstoppable movement of God called the church. In a sense, this morning, I want to ask, like, how do we know that we're on God's plan, that we're living out God's plan in our lives? So, so if you're like, from the story, if you're the note-taking kind of person, I'm just going to ask two questions. You know, maybe these are just, these are good questions for you to think about today, think about this week, talk them in your mirror in your bathroom in the morning, and just a reminder for yourself. We've got a prayer team in the back table by the ramp. Maybe it's an opportunity to, to go over there with that with those people and to and to pray and to ask God what it's like for this to to be lived out. Um, maybe it's a small group opportunity that you have to get into and ask these questions. Maybe it's in the car ride on the way home and just ask your family or friends, anybody that you're with, and just. And just ask him these two questions to see if you're, if you're living out God's plan. The first one is that, are you investing your life into others? I Maybe mean, the funny thing about how this movement continues to grow is that, is that Paul decides to be this, this, a tent maker so he can spend more time with Aquila and his wife Priscilla. And he pours into them and invests into them. And and it's not shocking, it's not a surprise uh, factor that they show up, again, in numerous letters as leaders in the church in Corinth. That's, That's what kind of people they were after he invested into them, poured into them. A little while later in, in Acts, later on in this chapter in 18, we find that Priscilla and Aquila are now pouring into this guy named Apollos who shows up already a Christian but has never heard of the Holy Spirit before. And Priscilla and Aquila spend time with him to like round out the things of the faith that he doesn't know. And Apollos becomes not just a leader in the church in Corinth, but Apollos becomes what we would know of today as like a bishop over this whole, all of the churches in this whole massive region. It's like the way that God has it set up is that we personally hand the faith from one to another to another. And so I ask that question, right? Like, who are you investing into? It can't just stop with you. It has to continually move on. It has to continually to go to somebody else after that. Um, around here, one of the big ways that we do that is in small group communities, um, usually these things are started with, a, with like a study in mind or a term in mind, a clear beginning and end point. And I want to be completely honest with everybody here, right? Because one of the, one of the gaps that we have or one of the bottlenecks that we see most often that prevents these groups from flourishing and growing and, and welcoming in more people, it isn't like advertising, it isn't like getting enough people to join them. One of the most common bottlenecks that prevents these things from, from exploding is leaders. It's people willing to stand up and saying like, I am ready to pour and to invest into somebody else for the sake of the gospel. Most of you, if we we're gonna do a, a show of hands, and like, how did you hear about the faith? It probably wasn't by listening to something on the radio. It probably wasn't by, um, by reading something in a book. Most of you said... I can name the person who taught me. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a youth pastor or somebody or a teacher. I could name the person who poured into me. And so that's what this, this gospel thing is all about. We have kids ready. They're just ready and excited to hear the message, the stories about Jesus. And they're not going to remember the particular Bible lessons that you might teach to them, but they'll remember that you showed up and cared enough to pass that down to the next. The first one is, are you, just, are you, are you investing into others and not just yourself. And the second one I think is really, is even harder is that, are you risking enough to need God's help? You see, I think Paul is such an incredible character in the story, it's so humbling for me to read that he was terrified, that he was trembling. He was afraid and he needed God to show up and remind him that I'm here, don't be afraid and i think that paul was just doing what he was he was built to do from day one and maybe he was but but outside of outside of that god was god was calling him to a vision even even bigger than himself and so what often happens to me in, in my life is that I try to come up with these plans so that, so that I can kind of round out God on the other side and say, well, I'm going to guarantee success on something or I'm going I'm to make sure that, that this thing is, is going is to win and, and it's going to be a victory. And, and then I, what I do is I like cut God out in that process. And I think the takeaway we're here is, like, are you risking enough? Am I risking enough to need God's help? I don't think that he's necessarily calling us, everyone, to, to become martyrs or to sell our house or do a—but, like, what, what is it that are we willing to lose for the sake of living out God's plan in our lives? And if we can't come up with much on that, I heard a quote. I think it's, it's possible— that we're actually living out our plan with this candy coating of religiosity around it. So like two questions in light of the story is are you investing into others and not just yourself? And then are you risking enough to actually need God's help? Friends, when it comes to the unstoppable movement of God called the church, as you go out of this place, out of this series, I sincerely hope that you know that outside of of the miracles in the story of Acts, outside of the exponential growth in the book of Acts, I hope that you know the most miraculous and the most powerful testimony that you have is that God, in fact, saved you. Is that God caused a miracle to occur in your life when he offers you and I forgiveness as a way to turn away from our junk, turn away from our sin, turn away from our guilt, turn away from our, our shame. As that message continues to be told and continues to be retold, I think that's what makes the, the church unstoppable. Is the miracle of God in our own lives as we trade out our plan for his. I want to talk, if I could, to those of you who are just about to get baptized this morning. And I'm so excited for you. Because that's what you're doing. You're showing the world that you have raised to new, you've been raised to new life in Christ. And if you're experiencing this, like, this talk, to say, maybe today's my baptism Sunday. Maybe today is it. I hope you go to the table in the back and talk to Paula. And I hope you make this your baptism Sunday. If you're ready to move on to a new place, graduate school or college, even if it's not from here anymore, consider whether or not today is the day that you're ready to show the world that you've raised to new life in Christ and go to the table in the back. If you're ready to step outside of the umbrella of your parents, or your husband, or your wife, or your small group leader and say, no, 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 I am owning this faith for myself. You're ready to show the world you've been raised to new life in Christ. Go to the table in the back in just a moment.